to be able to do. We're going to look at Titus. Let me kind of give you a brief overview of Titus, and we'll come back the next few weeks and give you more an understanding on Titus. But what we have is that we as a congregation, as a church, we have not taught an epistle in a couple of years. If you've been around Redemption, you know this, that we teach through books of the Bible. About 85, 90% of the time, if not more, we are teaching through a book of the Bible. And about a few years ago, we taught through the book of Romans. And it took us a decade, it felt like, to actually talk through Romans. And we went through a gospel after that and a couple uh, Old Testament narratives and so forth that we have not taught through an epistle, which is a letter in the New Testament. And so Titus is actually a part of what is known as the pastoral epistles. What that means is Paul, the writer of Titus, who himself was a missionary, who was called and set apart by the Lord, that God himself in Christ revealed himself to, to Paul in a supernatural way that we read about in the book of Acts, and that he called him to go plant churches and, and, and introduce the gospel to people, primarily to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were anybody who were not ethnic Jewish people. Well, during this time, Paul would have men and women around him, and particular men he would have, and he would leave them in the cities that he would go. So think of it this way. Paul would go to a city, he would share the gospel, men and women would believe the gospel, and then they would begin to form a church, and then Paul would leave leaders there to run that church. He'd go to another city, he'd do the same thing. He'd go to another city, and he'd do the same thing. And then those churches would have questions, and he'd write letters to them, and they would have, they would have letters, letters like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. There's are letters that Paul wrote, uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, etc. And then there's a few men that were around him and whom he discipled. And had deep fellowship and relationship with. Those particular people that we see letters to are Timothy and Titus. And they're known as the pastoral epistles for this reason. That they are pastoring a people in a city. And so First and Second Timothy was Paul's letter to Timothy. He wrote one letter, then he wrote another letter to him. And then there was Titus, the book that we have here. And this is not recorded in Acts, but what we glean from reading Titus is that Paul at some point must have been in Crete, the city that he's in. And this particular city, there, there was, it, was, it was kind of a center for political and religious um, and philosophical ideologies. And so multiple beliefs, very pluralistic society. In fact, their own prophets about them say, this is what you know about the Cretans. They are lazy beasts and liars. So a good group of people to hang out with. And that's, that's, that's where Paul was at preaching this gospel. Well, people believed upon the gospel and seemingly Paul left. And then he writes back to Titus. And he says, I want to write to you for a reason. And if you want to understand the whole big idea of Titus, it is this, that gospel living produces, excuse me, gospel believing produces gospel living. That when you believe upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are resting in the work of Christ and Christ alone, that it should and it will inevitably bring about change in your life that you look more godly. That you begin to look more, work more, act more like Jesus Christ in all areas of life. And so Titus writes, excuse me, Paul writes to Titus to say, here's what I want you to do. I want the gospel to continue to go forth. And the way that the gospel will continue to go forth is you continue, continuing to plant and start new churches and having proper leadership of which men and women are responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ and their lives being shaped in the way that they view work and the way that they view family life and the way that view social life, and that's what we'll begin to see in the book of Titus. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at men and women's roles, men and women's roles in the family. And I know girls and ladies, I know you guys are thinking like, oh, he's going to tell me I need to stay in the house and be with the kids. I'm like, listen, we ain't going to go there, right? It's going to be a couple more weeks, right? I'm going to probably have somebody else come and teach that passage, and then we're, we're, we're going to get back to it, right? We're going to talk about what does it look like truly to live all of life all for Jesus in the marketplace. 
And mainly looking at how does the spirit of God through his grace not only bring us into the kingdom of God, but how does this same grace begin to train us to live in such a way that we begin to look more like Jesus and desire as a community, not just individuals, to look more and more like Jesus. But all of it is under the guise of gospel believing will produce gospel living. In fact, that's the bulk of what we're talking about today. So for the sake of structure, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, 1 through 5, and that is Paul saying, this is who I am, this is how God's called me, and he lays out the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, this, is, this matters most. And everything that flows from there is a response to that gospel. So the first section is, here's the gospel. And the next section is going, as Paul is instructing Titus, he says, here's how I want the gospel to go forth. I want you to have mature leaders whose lives look like they're believing the gospel. And primarily that's talking about the role of an elder or a pastor. So kind of awkward to be preaching you guys a message about what God says about people like me. But... We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through that somehow. So would you pray with me right now so we can, we can do that together. Let's pray not only for our time tonight, but throughout this series. Lord, as we sing with the hymn, Lord, be thou our vision. As we look at your word over these next seven weeks, as we look at the book of Titus, as your word, Father, is communicated um, from the stage and our redemption communities, as the men and women will take time to study and know your word individually, God, I pray that it would not just be a knowledge that puffs up, but a knowledge that absolutely brings about the transformation of your people. That we would think not just individually, but as a community, Lord, of what does it look like for us to embrace the gospel deeply, that it begins to bring about the transformation and change that you promise. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate scripture. We ask for your Holy Spirit to waken in us, Lord, a deeper desire to look like you, to long for you, to understand the hope of eternity in which you promised before the ages began. Father, we thank you. God, we praise you, we give you the honor and glory in Christ's name, amen. So I, I've come to this point now where I'm, I'm talking to my kids about there's just certain realities that you can't have, right? You got to be honest with your kids and you tell them the truth that there's certain things you can't do. I'm not, I'm not under the belief that I'm going to tell my kids they can become anything they want. I understand like some people do that, that's fine. I just know my kids can't become anything they want. There's some realities that it'd be, they'd be very lucky to actually play in the NBA. So my son's like, I want to play NBA, it's not going to happen, man. I'm not a dream killer, I'm just saying I'm short. And he will look at his friends, and so the other day he's got a really tall friend that's about a year older than him, but like about a foot and a half taller than he is. And my oldest son says, well, will I be as tall as him? It's like, probably when you're 15. I know he's only eight, but when, when you're 15, you might, you might be that height. And here's why. So you look at his mom, you look at his dad, they're taller than your mom and your dad. And he's got another friend. I said, look at his mom, look at his dad, they're, they're taller. And I'm trying to teach him, there's genetics. And genetics is real, and you can't fight genetics. And I said, here's the deal. Here's what's coming. You have a big butt, big forehead, big lips. They're coming. They're coming, man. You were my son, right? And there's just no doubt about it. It's coming. Just trust me. He's like, Dad, you should. Yeah, man, it's, it's happening, right? Because it is. And some of you guys, you, you looked at your parents, and you have that moment where you look in the mirror and you go, oh, I look like my mom. Or I look like my dad. Every once in a while, I look in my eyes and go, oh, I'm there. I'm my dad now, right? I'm my dad. And that's why I had to tell my sons, hey, man, it's coming, man. Enjoy it. You guys are cute right now. I mean, this is going <laughs> to end, right? And so enjoy it right now because it's in you. It's in you. It's genetics. Here's what Paul is talking about here, that he is talking to a group of people, writing to a group of people who have received the gospel. It's in them. 
that the Spirit of God is in them. And he says, though you're young Christians, though there's immaturity, though you might be looking like this wild culture that you're living in now, because the gospel has been planted in you, there is a spiritual DNA, there's a gospel genetic that is in you now that inevitably, if you are trusting in Jesus, you're going to grow to become something. And what you're going to grow to become collectively as a community is to look more like Christ. And Paul is saying, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to look more godly. And I know for some of us, we go, is that it? There's nothing better. The problem is, when's the last time you or I sat on our knees and said, Lord, make me more godly? Like, when was the last time we prayed, Lord, I want to grow in godliness? We, we might have said, God, help me remove these sins out of my life or help me get better at this. Um, Lord, help me date this girl. No, not her. Let me make, date this other girl. Right? We might have said things like that. But have we actually said, Lord, can, can, can I be more holy? Can I be more like you? Can, I have, can you grow and awaken my affections and my desires to look like you, think like you, then in everything that I do, it resembles who you are and the places in which you've called me? Paul's saying that's what it looks like for us to be a missional people, a people who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that other men and women would desire to look like and live like ultimately our Savior Jesus. Well, Paul writes this letter to Titus to say, it's in you. And now that it's in you, there is a life that ultimately is produced out of that. And so if you're with me in Titus chapter 1, here's what Paul says at the beginning of this letter. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ, Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. Now we start with Paul. Like, I don't want to just assume that we all know Paul. Paul himself first defines himself as a servant of God, literally a slave of God. And here's what he's saying, no matter what I do or say, I am so tethered to God, that, that God is my master. If he says jump, I, I say how high. If he says run, I say how far, and Lord, when do you want me back? Like it's whatever God wants from me, that's what I'm going to be able to do. That's the essence of him saying my identity is wrapped up in this love of God the Father. I am a slave to God. And then he moves on and says, I'm an apostle. An apostle just means that he's sent by God. And he's not just sent like you and I are sent, that there was a special office of apostleship that was given to the 11 apostles or disciples that Jesus chose. And there was another guy that was adding in the beginning of Acts. And then there was Paul, as he himself identifies as one who was untimely born. And what he's saying is, I didn't actually walk with Jesus. I was walking against Jesus. And I wasn't just walking as an unbeliever. I was one who was a persecutor of the church of God. Meaning when the church was getting started, Paul was saying they should not be. He thought he was acting on behalf of God and persecuting God's church. And as he was going ultimately to persecute more and more Christians, Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, revealed himself to Paul. He says, Paul, what are you doing? You're persecuting me. That when you hurt my people, you hurt me. And Paul's like, who is this Lord? He goes, this is Jesus Christ the one who you persecute. And Paul there, his name at the time was Saul, that God struck him blind and says, go to this man, he's going to pray for him. When, you, when he prays for you, you'll receive your sight. And there was this physical picture of someone who was blind who received sight, not just physically but spiritually. Someone who was named Saul who's now been changed to Paul. Someone who was against the church now promotes the gospel of Jesus Christ that people may be included and to the people of God are known as the church. And so Paul went around planting these churches. He was sent by God. And there was something he was passionate about that we have to be passionate about. And the thing that he was passionate about was ultimately the gospel. That when he talked about marriage, he talked about the gospel. 
When he talked about singles, he talked about the gospel. When he talked about spiritual gifts, he talked about the gospel. When he talks about leadership, he talks about the gospel. Because here's what he's saying. There is nothing that matures us. There's nothing that grows us. There's nothing that makes us most like Jesus other than the good news that God gives us and the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Like he doesn't just give us good things to do or seven steps to make us better Christians. He goes, no, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when he sets out, he says, I'm a slave of God and I'm sent by God for this reason. He says, here's the purpose of why I'm writing you. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. He says, for the faith of the sake of God's elect. Here's what he's saying. If you've been around church for some time, you probably hear that word elect or election. You start getting, well, where are we going with this? Are we going to get in arguments? Let me just kind of give you an understanding of what Paul is doing. Paul takes this word and says there's the faith of God's elect, meaning people who belong to God. In the Old Testament, he's taking this word that, that is in the Old Testament of God choosing a people. The word elect just means God chooses. That God cho- chose a people that he redeemed by his grace out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Those people were known as the Israelites or the people of God. That God ultimately through his grace redeems them and that he gives them his law and say in response to the redemption that I've given you, which is grace, I want you to be able to live in a certain way and here's my law that the world will begin to know who I am through you. Meaning it was never by race, it was always by God's grace, it was a particular people. What Paul is doing is saying he's reaching back with that same concept and he's applying it not only to the Hebrew people, but any man and any woman who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They belong to God. He's saying these people have already received Jesus. People always trip. Well, how do we know who the elect are? Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. Like you believe in Jesus Christ, you're the elect. How do I know? You believe in Jesus Christ. That's, that's simple as that. Paul's saying, I'm writing this for your faith. Here's why. They were living in a culture that was just as pluralistic as ours, uh, just as wild as ours, and there were these young Christians. I don't know how many of you guys in here are young Christians. I know quite a few of your stories. And not just you're young because you're like under 30, but you have a young faith. You're new to this thing called Christianity. And if you were like me when I first became a Christian, there were a lot of things that I was doing as a new Christian I don't do anymore. (laughs) Meaning you become a Christian, you know that you're a sinner, and Jesus Christ is your Savior, but sometimes your life doesn't begin to reflect this new life that you have. In fact, your, your, in fact, your life kind of looks more like the life that you, that you used to have, and yet you have Jesus. That maybe even sometimes there's people in your life who are your friends go, you don't look any different from me. You just don't get a chance to sleep in on Sundays. And then you guys can say, we do because we go to the 5 o'clock service, right? And so there's some validity to that, right? What Paul is saying is, I'm trying to tell you not to leave Crete, not to leave your culture, Not to start this alternate community over here where all the Christians are over here away from the big bad world. He goes, no, you're going to be in this world that I once said was good, that is still good, but is tainted by sin. But I am calling you out and putting you back to be a counterculture. Meaning the life that you live is now radically upside down because the gospel of the kingdom of God always turns everything upside down. Jesus says, if you think the way up is this way, it's actually the way down. If you want to gain your life, you got to lose your life. And now he's saying, now that you are new in this this new life as a Christian in this world where there's competing ideologies and worldviews and perspectives, let me give you a gospel perspective in order that you may live. So I write this for the sake of your faith that you may actually grow in an understanding of knowledge. And as you grow in knowledge, it's not that you depart or grow grow further away from the gospel, but you actually go deeper into the truth of how much God loves you in Christ how much you are a new creation in Christ, how relationships look in Christ, how purity looks in Christ. 
Ultimately, how do you communicate and work in Christ? How do you recreate and create beautiful things in Christ that you begin to understand the knowledge of scriptures, that you become so rooted that your personality and everything about you gets hidden in Jesus? He goes, I write this for this reason. And when you believe this, he says, it accords with godliness. That godliness doesn't become this static thing. It becomes this vibrant a vitality, of faith in Jesus that we begin to live out collectively. That when we see the things that we read about in the book of Acts of people just walking in the spirit of God and doing things that only God can call them to do, it's because they have a vibrant faith and understanding that the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to permeate everything that they do. Amen? Like we, we live for that. And Paul goes, I write this for this reason. That gospel believing will result in gospel living, like your life will be changed. Well, he continues here, he says, um, for the sake of their faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness, and he says this, the basis of this knowledge is in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before ages began, at, and at the proper time was manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Here's what Paul is saying. The basis of our faith is the hope of eternal life. When's the last time you really hoped about eternal life? Not just escaping this world. That's not what it's about. About when Christ comes and redeems this world and you can be with him for all eternity. Like when was the last time you're like, Lord, I want to see you face to face forever. Like that, that one verse in the Bible that most people know. <laughs> that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him, that he should not perish, that she should not perish, but have eternal life. That that is the good life. That we have all these competing things around us that are telling what the good life is. As Joe said earlier, that, that men have an idea of what their culture says, this is the good life. That women have an idea that say, this is what the good life is. And Jesus is saying, I'm the good life. Like, it's, it's, it's I am the good life. God is saying the good life is in Christ, and I'm holding that out for anybody who would get into that. That is the basis of this faith, that this is not wishful thinking. This is a reality that the good life has begun when we begin to receive and believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, my friends, is God's idea for us. In fact, God is so committed to it, he says, this is the promise. And this promise was not an afterthought. In fact, it reads this way, that he promised before the ages began. You think about that. God promises before the ages began. Like God's like, I'm going to be with my people forever. And I'm going to make a promise. And it says God who never lies makes this promise. Why would he say that? Right? We just assume that God doesn't lie. Well, if you were a Cretan and you live in that world, um, the, the, the phrase here in verse 12, it says this. One of the Cretan prophets of their own, meaning one of their own people said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's a good group there, right? They also, their gods that they believed in would lie. One of their gods was the god of Zeus. And Zeus would be a liar. And he would actually pretend to be um, a husband of, of women in order to, to, uh, to have sex with him, right? So they believed in gods that lied. And Paul's saying, no, 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 the god of the Bible, the true god of the world, he didn't lie. And he made a promise that he wants to be with you for all eternity. Then, then you step back and you're like, who's he promising to if this is before the ages began? Think about that. Before he created anything, before he created the world, before he created Adam and Eve, before he created in and out, like all the good stuff. Um, there's, like, who did he promise? Well, what was God always doing? God was always there as a father loving his son. 
that at some, some, some point in eternity past, God is telling Jesus, his son, that, that he's going to have a people, that God has always been the perfect, intimate lover as a good father of a son and saying, I'm going to create a people um, who will sin against me and ultimately I'm still going to make a way that they can share in this relationship and this love that I've had for my son for all eternity. And I will make a promise that though eternity past, I make this promise knowing that when I set this thing in motion, creating people in our image, that ultimately man and women given volition will choose to sin against me, that not an afterthought, that revelation lets us know that the son of God was crucified before the foundation of this world. Always God's plan that in the in-between when we sin and separated ourselves from God, that God said, I made a promise with my son a long ago that many would begin to share in the life and love that I have for Jesus. Paul says, that's what I'm doing this for. And that's what this whole thing is about. Is that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to have eternal life, to know the love of the Father and to share in the love of the Father, not by our own good merits, but completely resting in the work and being hidden in the reality of our blessed union with Jesus Christ, his son. And I know most of us, if we've read Titus, we're like, I never read that. I just kind of skipped to that first three verses, man. He just spent 15 minutes in the first two verses. What am I doing in my quiet time? All right? That's why we preach through the books of the Bible, right? There is so much in this of God saying, I love you because I love you. And the way that you get in on this, the way that people experience this love of Jesus from eternity past, ultimately throughout eternity, in the future is this. It says, and at the proper time, this love, ultimately, this gospel was made manifested through the word, um, through the preaching, which with I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. I mean, the way that people grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way they grow in understanding the love of God is not by working harder or trying harder. It's through the preaching of the word. And it's not just through the preaching of the word in which I do as a pastor. It's you preaching the word to yourself. That this is the means of which you're entering into the kingdom of God, but also what sustains and grows and ultimately continues you, completes you through that kingdom. Paul says it this way when he talks to the church at Philippi. He, speaking of God, that begin a good work, speaking of us as the people of God in Christ, that he, God, will finish it to a completion. He's more for your godliness than you are. He's more for your sanctification, which is just a big word of you becoming more like Jesus than you are. That if you have a desire to be in Christ, that means the gospel of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God has been planted in you. And God himself by the Spirit will grow you in that knowledge. And he says this happens through the preaching. So when's the last time you shared the gospel to yourself? Like when was the last time you woke up and said, God, I thank you so much that you have redeemed me from myself and from the things of this world and from my own sin, that you've washed me, that you've renewed me, and not just me, but the world, and that you are promising to put all things back in its right, and I will see you face to face, and I would actually be able to know without the presence of sin of what it means to know and to be loved supremely by a father <laughs> and by a good father. Like, when's the last time we let that motivate our lives instead of just trying harder to be a good Christian? It's not about trying harder. So Paul starts off this whole letter. Everything is in. I'm writing this for the sake of this. Your faith, my faith, our faith as Redemption Tempe, that we may be edified in the gospel, that we may grow in the gospel, and that ultimately it will begin to show forth what it looks like in our life of people who believe in Jesus. So now he directly turns to Titus in verse 4. He says, to Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now let me just pause here for a second because i got to give you a little something. Um, when it says here, my true child, it's not his biological child. Paul doesn't have any children. 
Um, he's saying there is a spiritual fatherhood that is happening here. That he has taken Titus along and he's a spiritual father. So let me just tell you this. Every single one of us, and just looking out here, most of you guys are younger than I am. Um, every single one of us needs a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. That you should be hounding people in this church that look like they're older than you and look like they might know Jesus more than you. You might get it wrong a couple times, but if just, just get it right. And if you're older in here and somebody comes to you, don't get offended like, oh, you think I'm old? It's all relative here, right? You're 29, it's like, dude, you are old, right? And so, so, so somebody that's further along than you, you may not get a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. You might get a spirit, spiritual sister or a brother that might be just a few years ahead of you, but you need to follow them as they follow Christ. Right? We've said it before that this sort of discipleship is one beggar telling the other beggar where they both can find bread. It is important. When I became a Christian just after I graduated college, I, I, I asked the guy, I was, I mean, I was, my life didn't look any different from the time that I believed in Jesus to the time I didn't. I said a lot of things that I wouldn't do before. You guys have done that. Lord, I'm not going to do this any, anymore. Sorry, Lord. Tomorrow I'm not going to, dang it, um, Lord. And then you finally get to that point where like, God, if you don't want me to do it, why don't you take it away? Right? You get mad at God for your issues, right? And I'm going... How do I, I don't know if I would have said the word grow. I don't think I had that in my vernacular yet. But what this guy said, you need to be discipled. And I remember praying like, Lord, I need somebody to disciple me or show me what it means to follow Jesus. And, and God, and I've said this before, God brought me this guy named Eli, who I named my youngest son afterwards. And, um, and this was, this to me was had to be an act of God because this particular person was only about four years older than me, but he was further along, he's married, had a great walk with Jesus. And I knew it was an act of God, not because he discipled me, but because he had gone and played football at University of Arizona, right? And I thought, I didn't even know people were saved there, right? <laughs> and so that, that's a joke, they're, they're saved. As one escape in the flames, as Paul says. And so there's, there's, there's. <laughs> There's, 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 there's this where Eli began to show me how to read the Bible. And I leech myself to him, not just read the Bible. Like when he would say things like, hey, me and my family are going out to eat at this place. I'm like, all right, what time do you want me to meet you there? Right? Like I was inviting myself, that awkward person, but I needed it. And I was okay with him saying no, but I anticipated the yes. You got to find people like that. Hear me on this. Nobody who wants to be discipled goes without being discipled. If you expect somebody else to find that for you, you don't really want it. No one who wants to be discipled goes without being discipled because you will try and you will try until you find, you pester, you bug, you leech to be around that person. Now, inevitably, there's going to be somebody here who goes, I'm going to ask Ricardo to do it. Don't ask me. We're not compatible. It's never going to work. All right. So <laughs> got to find somebody else in here. Um, Paul says, I'm your spiritual father. And then he tells him, this is why I left you here. Um, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So everything is laid out in the gospel. And he says there's certain men who are called to lead the church. And they have to be people who believe in this truth. And if they're believing and living this truth, there's a certain character that will come about. Look for them. Those who have rested in the work of Christ. He goes, I put you here so that this gospel movement continue, can continue to go forward. That people will continue to know. But it has to start with leaders. And we have to establish leaders within the church. And, and he talks about these elders, or you, or you may say pastors. And most times those words are used interchangeably. They mean to oversee. That these people are called in a certain way. And what we're going to see here is that their character should be blameless. It talks about above reproach. And that's blameless in the home. That's blameless in their character. And that's blameless ultimately in their doctrine. And blameless doesn't mean perfect, but if there's any charge against them, it doesn't always stick. 
Meaning if there's one of these things that are off, that there's genuine repentance that's happening in this, these men that are called to lead the church. So here's what he says, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, or that means blameless, this is first in the home, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So here's what it says. This particular person, this first, this first find the guy, he goes, this is not that hard. Find somebody who's the husband of one wife. Now, the husband of one wife in the Greek literally means the husband of one wife. Right? Just want to make sure we're clear. So at, at least this means don't be a polygamist. Right? This means you have one woman. Marriage shows a lot about what you believe about God. And I'm not saying the only way you can have a good marriage is if you trust in Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus, there's a way that you talk about your spouse that is uplifting and encouraging. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I hear men or women talk bad about their spouse. Like almost belittle them. It's like, that's your spouse. Like, that ain't just someone from down the street. Like, you don't talk about them like that. I know not a lot of you are not married. And you, sometimes you hear married people talk about marriage and you go, why would I ever want that? Right? It's the guy like, oh, you know, my wife wants me the old ball and chain. It's like the ball and chain? Like, what are you doing, right? Like, this is a gift. This is a gift. And isn't it crazy, right? Some of you who were single who desire to be married, you're going, I desire to be married. And yet I hear these people go, I got to go home to my wife. I wish I had a wife. I got to go home to be with my husband. I wish I had a husband, right? It's a good thing. And I think it says a lot about where people are in the Lord. That, that you, when you marry somebody, that is your standard of beauty, Right? If you're a guy and whoever it is that you married, that is, that is a standard of attractiveness. That is a standard of beauty. That is your boo thing for life, right? Like that's what that is. And if you're a woman that you marry a guy, like that's it, right? So when me and Holly got married, we had this song played. And I love this song by Music Soul Child. You guys probably don't know it because you guys are probably too young. But it said, um, I'll love you when your hair turns gray, girl. I always love the girl part at the end. And I still want you if you gain a little weight, girl, right? <laughs> right? And that's just the way it is. It's like that's, that's, that's a husband of one wife. This is my wife. And Paul says, make sure that this man genuinely loves his wife. And that talks about his kids, right? Because he's looking at the home. He's blameless, that he's not looking around for other women. And ultimately that he is managing his home. He says that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. That's like wild living. Now, some people believe, if you look at, there's a parallel passage in um, 1 Timothy chapter 3 that, that looks very similar to what we have here in Titus. And, and some say it's kids who are believers and some, some would translate it as your kids have to be followers of Christ, made a profession to be Christians. And then some people say, no, 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 this is looking at the man and ultimately can he lead his family that his kids are not run amok and wild. We, we are over here. Um, we don't believe that our kids have to make a profession of faith. In fact, there are many godly men and women who have adult children who have raised their children in the ways of the Lord who are not Christian. There is no guarantee just by being raised in quote-unquote a Christian home that you will grow up and be a Christian. There are a lot of parents who are our parents' age who walk around with a great deal of guilt because their kids are not walking with Jesus just yet. I was one of those kids. My mom raised me in the ways of the Lord. My dad didn't, but my mom did. And I was not in Christ, but God was faithful to the prayers of my mother and the work of his son Jesus that he called me to himself. What this is saying is, are you managing your house and your kids are in check that they're ultimately not wild? If my family is wild, I should no longer be your pastor. That somebody on this team is going to go, you need to stop even for a season to be with your family and take care of these things or inevitably step off of this role to care for your family. 
there used to be the thought that people would say to the minister or the pastor or the reverend, whatever you call them, you take care of the church and God will take care of your family. <laughs> no, God will take care of your family through you and your wife. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. When people say, Ricardo, I want, every time people say, I want to meet with Ricardo, well, here's some times I need to meet. Well, can we meet Ricardo at 6.30 p.m.? No. I got a seven-year-old. I got a five-year-old. I got a wife. That's time for me to be with him. We can meet before then or maybe even late night. We can meet after that I put him to bed. But my, my kids need their dad, right? Because you know what I needed growing up? I needed my dad. He wasn't there. My kids are going to get their dad, right? That's important for me. Here's another thing I say. Don't make my kids hate this church. And here's how this can happen. Pastors' kids already have an unnecessary pressure put upon them that nobody says to them. It's on them. It's on them. At six, at seven, no matter how old they are, they think they're supposed to be better because they're, your, they're, they're my kids or the other elders' kids, right? And naturally, people think that. So if my kids are in children's ministry and you are faithfully serving in there and they get in trouble, you get them in trouble just like everybody else gets in trouble. If they did something really good and you're supposed to reward them, then you reward them like everybody else. Don't expect for them to know all the verses. Don't expect them to know the Greek, the Hebrew, speaking in tongues, none of that, right? Like, don't, don't expect any of that. So, so here's, here's the extremes because on one hand, there's, there's a level of privilege that they get, right? So when we were at a different, a different church, I'm not going to name the church, Redemption Gilbert, and they were, we were over there. Years ago, before we had Eli, before we came to Tempe, and um, Noah was in the, child, the children's ministry, and he was like two or three or something like that, and they, um, he was playing with the hula hoop. Well, the next week, Holly shows up to drop him off, and like one of the workers had like bought him a hula hoop, right? And Holly's like, did, did all the other kids get hula hoops? And they're like, no, we just want to give it to your child. She's like, ah, can't take that, right? And not because we're like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't want to take your hammies out. I'll take a hula hoop any day, right? <laughs> But we just already in our own hearts wanted to be able to go, we're not going to allow our kids to be treated any differently just because they're our kids. Because there's a flip side to that, <laughs> right? I've had about eight pastor's kids come up to me today and go, hey, I was a pastor's kid. And I lived like that. I lived in fear of doing something wrong. <laughs> I, did, I lived in fear of this. Um, what this passage is saying is not that the kids should be perfect. The passage is saying that they should be cared for. They should be loved. The gospel should be repeatedly taught to them. They should be taught by me and my wife about Jesus, that they should be disciplined. There should be boundaries, and we should be caring for them. And when they get outside of that, that we need to probably step aside, either for a season or inevitably. But ultimately, he, this person should be blameless in the family as a result of trusting not in what people think about his kids, but ultimately what God thinks about him, that everything flows from the gospel. Amen? So blameless in the house. And then it says blameless in character. And the next thing he says in verse 7, it says, an overseer or elder as God's steward must, not, must be above reproach. And he, just, he gives some negative things here. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Meaning, like, you don't need the Holy Spirit to be a drunkard. You don't need the Holy Spirit to be a bully, ultimately violent. There's just using your power or influence to get whatever you want. Like, that person, no thank you. And Paul said, that's not what it should be. Blameless in character actually looks like verse 8, hospitable, meaning to accept and to welcome strangers, primarily people who don't know Jesus. As Christians, we are like, we love to say we're so hospitable. We have all our Christian friends over. Hospitality and the Roman Greco world were not you just had other Christians over and you ate together. It meant that you had strangers, people you didn't even know over your home and into your life. That this person should be able to be welcome and welcome strangers. That he's hospitable. He's a lover of good. That he genuinely loves the good things in which God calls good. That he seeks justice. That this person is self-controlled. 
that he's upright, that he's holy, that he's disciplined. Like all of these things that should be in this particular person that God is called to lead. That there's a blameless. Not to say that they're always perfect in this. But there's repentance. There's humility. There's a brokenness. And resting in the work of God to say this is something we're striving for. So blameless at home. Blameless in character. And then blameless in his doctrine. Verse 9. This is the last verse we're going to cover. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He must hold fast to the word, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible, the word, the authority, the narrative in which we live out of has to be something that we hold fast to. Not just we can kind of know some cute things to say about, like I have to, our elders have to know this. So that when we lead, we lead out of the wisdom that flows from the scripture. That when we give counsel, we give counsel out of the the word that flow from scripture. That when we teach, we teach as best as we know that the word of God says. And for this reason, to give instruction to those of us who are in faith and in Christ. And to also rebuke or refute those who are trying to bring bring in false teaching into the church. That those who are teaching a a different gospel outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That these things that matter if we're going to live out the gospel. Let me just tell you this now. You go, yes, I want elders to have that. These qualities should be in everybody who's a Christian. It's not just elders need to be people who don't get drunk. Christians need to be people who don't get drunk. Let that be a word for many of us. Drunkenness is a sin every time, guys. And I understand we got a culture where people drink and understand their freedom in Christ, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's always something wrong with drunkenness. There's always something wrong with being a bully. There's always something good in being a lover of good. There's always something right in being hospitable. There's always something lovely in you loving your spouse. There's always something right in you raising your family in the ways of the Lord. There's always something good when not just the pastors, but the people, the priesthood of believers, that means every man, woman, and child in Christ Jesus begins to hold fast to the word of God, that we disciple each other out of the word of the Lord. Will our children do things that are wild and crazy sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of, the, one of my greatest and funniest and worst experiences here at this church was when my son had just been potty trained, about two and a half, three years old. We had just come here, and we would pray after the service up here. And I was praying with somebody deeply in prayer, speaking in tongues, fasting, the whole thing. And, and then somebody, somebody came up to me and was like, hey, Ricardo, I'm like, I'm praying for somebody. No, your son. And the kids were running around, and my son was in the back over there peeing. <laughs> in the, on the floor, Right. And I'm just like, dang, it's my kid right there. There's nothing you can get away from that. Like, it's like, that's the pastor's kids right there. He's peeing on the floor, right? <laughs> and, and before the service, the next service, I had to be there, like, squirting, like, on, you know, just cleaning, cleaning his pee up, right? And it's like, yeah, that's what, you know, I don't, I'm sure somebody taught him that at home. I don't know. <laughs> me, me, me. But it's just going like, that's embarrassing. But it's like, hey, you know what? They're not going to always be perfect. But what us, we all should seek to do that ties all this together, our character, the way we live, our zeal for the gospel is ultimately what Paul gives here in verse 9. That he, and I would say this, we all should hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That our identity is not in our performance but in the trustworthy word that is taught of Jesus Christ. That what grows us in our blame, the way that we become blameless is not in what we do or say but ultimately in the trustworthy word that is taught. That ultimately it's not about us just putting on a front that we are great, but ultimately resting in the trustworthy word that is taught. And when that trustworthy word is taught and you know that it is that word of God that is making you more and more like Christ and more and more godly, now you can be honest about the parts that you're weak at. And I do want to share this with you guys as we close because I don't have this perfect. Is, um, so 
if you depend on what church you grew up in, sometimes the elder, the role of elder is like, this guy's perfect. He never makes mistakes. He, he's sinless. When he prays, he floats in the air. Like, everything's amazing for this person, right? And that's just not true. It's not true of me. On the flip side, some of us grew in churches that, that elders and pastors were able to basically get away with murder. And they did things that they should have never been able to hold the position of leader or authority ever, ever. And we are saying our pastors and elders are not perfect. They are seeking by the word that is taught of Jesus to become more in the image and the likeness of Christ. But if there's ever moments that we are doing things here that, that we believe there are things that you can do and consistently do without repentance that will cause you to be removed from this. But I myself am not perfect. You guys, for the most part, get a glimpse of me and you go, Ricardo teaches the word. He kind of makes me laugh here and there. And he's my pastor. Your pastor is just as sinful as you are and in need of the trustworthy word that is taught. That there's not a man or woman in this room that doesn't need Jesus as much as I need Jesus. Though I believe that I'm qualified and called for this role. But I need Jesus to be qualified for this role. I need Jesus to grow as a man of God. And you need Jesus to grow as a man of God and a woman of God. That's right. Amen. Right. Right. So Here's, here, here's what it's like to work for me. And I share this only as a level of transparency. So we have these things here called the SWAT review. And you guys probably have it in your jobs. And if you don't have a full-time job yet, you're going to get this. And this is when everybody who works with you can tell you how bad you are. So here's, here, here's what this is. The SWAT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and strengths. So here's the weaknesses of compiled of the four people who I sent this to about me. Ricardo talks too much and doesn't listen. Sometimes he has a problem talking too much and doesn't listen. Ricardo talks too much, over-talks and doesn't listen, but I think he knows this. Now I do. Three people said it in a row, right? <laughs> Calendar is too full, resulting in rescheduled meetings and last-minute scrambling, rushed conversations, and a little margin when things pop up. Good at delegating things, but struggles to trust others with things great of great importance when these things don't fall within his strengths. This can create a bottleneck that adds to the business of his calendar, delays important work, and prevents others from expressing their gifts and leadership. Expectations of staff aren't always clear, especially roles, responsibilities, etc. This can result in tension between team members who may assume that the other person is not doing their job. Multiple people think they are responsible for the same thing or certain things remain undone because people think it's another person's responsibility. They, they don't want to overstep their boundaries. Struggles with anger and control when life gets very busy. Depending on the season, people may withhold their opinions and perspectives because they don't want to fall out of favor. No. Which is interesting. No. Many of these things go away when he has margin in his schedule, time to read, to reflect, and time for relationships. And there's more, right? And here's why I share that. One, what makes a person blameless, man, woman, anyone in Christ, is not just their action, but having people in their life that are going to tell them the truth like that. If you don't have the word of God and the people of God looking at you and going, you're not as good as you think you are, you will become so arrogant and so puffed up. The reality of it is all of those things are true. And if my wife wrote one, she would write the same thing. And, and I have to be accountable ultimately to these people. But the way I'm going to grow is not just by changing my, my behavior. And the way that you're going to grow is not just by changing your behavior, but resting, trusting, being nourished in the word that is taught. That the word of Jesus Christ has to be your identity. Or what you're going to do is you're going to walk away from it because you felt like you couldn't reach up to this standard. Or you're going to hide and you're going to pretend that nothing's wrong with you. Or you can be honest and realize you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dare believed. But at the same time in Christ Jesus, more loved and accepted. That he who began a good work 
is going to finish it to completion. Because if you believe the gospel, it will result in gospel and godly living in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. We thank you for his continuing work in our life that you have not only saved us from the penalty and wrath of sin, but you are saving us now. That your spirit and your gospel is constantly washing and renewing us that we may be most like you. That you made a promise to your son before the ages began that we will be with you for all eternity. And you made it possible for all to enter into that life and love and relationship with you through the finished work of your son, Jesus. And God, you authenticate that and you apply it through the preaching of the gospel. May we be people who believe upon the gospel, who understand the knowledge of Jesus Christ and grow in it. And Lord, may we have leaders, not just as elders, but men and women throughout the body, Lord, that understand what it means to hold out this character as a result of their life and walk with Jesus. God, we praise you and we thank you. We ask that you would guide us and that you would lead us. In Christ's name, amen. We get opportunity to respond to God's word, and we respond to God's word in four ways here. Uh, the first way we respond is that we respond in worship. And so uh, John and the team will continue to lead us in worship, and that's worship through singing. And the second way we respond is that we respond in giving, and so we, we give in this moment. And so the offering boxes are in the back, or you can go online and you can set up to give online. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you would say that Jesus is not your Lord and Savior. We don't expect you to give any money. In fact, we ask that you don't give any money. What we would ask that you'd give is any questions you have regarding Christianity or faith or church, anything you've heard me say or didn't, didn't hear me say, if you would take the Connect card in the seat in front of you and fill out your name, your email address, and whatever questions you have, drop those off in the offering boxes. We will get those, and we'd love to meet with you and talk with you. Second, third thing is we, we take this time to pray. If you're anything like me and you're going, I do love Jesus, but I know there's areas in my life that I can grow in. And there's areas in my life that I need to allow the gospel to, to redeem. Um, there's people in my life that I know that God is calling me to to preach and share this gospel, but I need the boldness, I need the strength. We'd love to pray for you. And we'd love to pray with you. And so there'd be people to my right and my left who are going to be here that would love to give prayer and pray with you and, and pray on your behalf. Lastly, there's bread and there's wine up here. And we take communion every week as a part of redemption because we believe the gospel is central to everything that we do. That it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that is the power of the gospel that God has called us in and has saved us with. And so the bread is the broken body of Jesus in which we know that Jesus' body was broken on behalf of all broken people. That we may be made whole. That we may be mended. That we may have healing ultimately in Jesus. And we dip it into the wine or the grape juice, which is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed that God himself planned this, that every single man, woman, and child that would trust in Jesus, that their sins would be forgiven past, present, and future, not by anything that they bring to the table, but Jesus himself brings to the table. And Jesus instituted this, and he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we remember Jesus in this moment and who he is to us. We confess our sin because he's faithful and just to forgive us, and we ask him to nourish us and give us the strength that we need in order to live as his children. So at this moment, I'm invite the ministry team and the communion team to go ahead and make their way forward. And when the time is appropriate and right for you, that you can begin to respond.